0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 14th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm
1: Juliette Foster on today's show. But while no deal remains a serious risk, Having observed events at Westminster over the last seven days, it's now my judgment that the more likely outcome is a paralysis in Parliament that risks there being no Brexit.
0: On the eve of a make-or-break vote, can Theresa May get Parliament to back her controversial Brexit withdrawal bill? My guests Carol Walker and Alessio Patelano will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including, could Russia and Japan conclude a peace treaty formally ending Second World War hostilities, plus an unholy row, the Catholic Church battles the mayor of Rome over who owns the millions of coins thrown by tourists each year into the iconic Trevi Fountain. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the political analyst and former BBC political commentator Carol Walker and also Alessio Pantalano. He's a lecturer in war studies at King's College London. Welcome both of you to the programme. I'm going to start with a quote a paralysis in Parliament that risks there being no Brexit. The stark warning from Theresa May, who spent the day urging MPs to accept her plan to take Britain out of the European Union. Persuading a divided Parliament to accept the withdrawal bill was always going to be a big ask, which might explain why the Prime Minister moved the date of the vote from December 11th to January 14th. Well, the strategy was to use the extra time to sell the deal to the country and win the support of MPs. Yet, if the numbers are anything to go by, that appears to have backfired. The question now is how heavy a defeat Mrs May is likely to suffer and what will happen to Brexit. Carol, we talked about this last year. Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year. We're
0: talking about it this year. I know that Brexit is your meat and drink, but look, at the moment, (laughs) it is a numbers game.
1: So how are the numbers looking? Will she take a pasting? It still looks as though the Prime Minister is heading for defeat on her Brexit strategy. And it's interesting that today she seems to be doing her utmost to try to win over Brexiteers by saying to them, look, unless you back my deal, then there's a danger that you won't get Brexit at all. Project fear. It has to be said, this is kind of Project Fear in reverse, but it has to be said she has won over three or four Brexiteers Mm. who have now said that they absolutely hate her deal because they feel that it would leave the UK still tied in far too closely with the European Union. But they accept her warnings that if you look at what's been happening in Parliament over the last week, it is those MPs who want either to remain in the EU or at least to have very, very close ties after Brexit who appear to have the majority in Parliament. So a small handful of MPs, Brexiteers, who'd said previously that they wouldn't vote for the deal have now said that they're going to support it. But the numbers still appear stacked against her. It looks as though she is heading for defeat, but it might not be quite as spectacular a defeat as some had thought. But I I
0: guess that uh, the the question has to be, uh, regardless of of the size of the defeat, I'm really leaving this open to both of you for your interpretations. It, It doesn't really matter.
1: A loss is a loss certainly under normal circumstances, (laughs) to have a Mm. Prime Minister defeated on the central plank of their administration, the most important issue facing the country, would inevitably mean uh, the government would fall, the Prime Minister would Mm. resign. Um, But we're not living in normal times.
2: No, exactly. I think it's a a very complicated situation. And um, I think part of the problem is because, um, I think, Carol, the point you were making about Project Fear in, in reverse is part of the reasons why no matter how this goes, it's going to be very likely a defeat unless something really happens in less than 24 hours, which which is unlikely. It's possible. It's in the realm of possibility, but it's very difficult. Um, But at the same time, if that doesn't happen, um, something very true about the process of Brexit uh, will uh, be exposed fully. And that is, regardless of whether one is a -er lever or a remainer, Brexit was always going to be and had to be a component of two different elements. One is how we get out of the EU and the other one was like, okay, what's next? What's the big project that we're after? And in a way, you would you know, sugarcoat the peel of whatever deal was happening if you had in place some sort of a vision for the day after this thing is done. Mm. Because you could always say, well, really, I hate this deal, but there's something else down the road which looks like this. And to me, what is really, um, was the best example of how the government is absolutely, and and, and parliament and, and sort of like the media infrastructure is not really ready for that because it hasn't spend even a second to talk about that was the press conference between Prime Minister Rabin and Theresa May last week in which for the first time since the beginning of the end of the this sort of Brexit process you have a, a Prime Minister of a foreign country who's coming to talk about bilateral relations and for the first time black and white mm-hmm. through a microphone he's talking about an economic deal that would interest the UK, TPP-11, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which now has a different name, but it would be one of the single largest, if you want, the free trade areas one can think of. And it's really the future because it's about Africa mm. and it's but, about but, but Asia. But in fairness,
0: hadn't that, hadn't that vision been alluded to by Brexiteers like Liam Fox because they'd always maintained when they were campaigning for Brexit that, look, Britain is... Hamstrung by staying in Europe and at least once we're free of Europe we can actually get involved in these these big game-changing deals.
1: Uh,
2: Sorry, uh, please go ahead.
1: uh, The whole reason why many Brexiteers hate this deal is that they feel that it does not give the UK the freedom that it needs to make the sort of free trade agreements that Alessio was talking about there, that it ties the UK far too closely to the EU in future. And I think part of the reason why we're in this huge huge difficulty is that Theresa May has spent the last two years trying to keep both sides of her divided party and parliament on board, making mutually incompatible promises to both sides mm. and has ended up with a compromise that pleases no one. Can I, no can one. I just throw, throw in an idea here? Because because look, what she's trying to get is some kind
0: of a compromise and it does appear that the general mood in in the country appears to be one of, look, we want Brexit, but we don't want to leave without a deal because of the fear that it, it could be messy. She has been criticised for, for trying to ride two horses at once, but it doesn't really matter who led the government. They would still be confronted with the same issue. So it's not really a question of, of skill, the ability to marry together two seemingly incompatible ends. It's, nobody could have achieved it, no matter how good they were.
2: I, I think what we're talking about is, is this intellectually uh, impossible to reconcile idea um, that geographically the UK cannot move somewhere else and underpinning the Brexiteers' uh, uh, idea is that once we're unshackled by the EU, then the world will become our oyster. I'm sorry, but geography doesn't really change. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and some and, and that's a very important point because geography tra- translates into specific economic constraints and advantages in relation to where you are. So and as well as security and defence matters. So when there is a May saying this is the best deal that we can possibly get, consider the fact considering the fact that we don't want to lose jobs, we need to look after our national security and our defence, she is right in one sense because of some of the arrangements mm. that we have with the EU and European partners are related to this unavoidable fact.
1: But the Brexiteers are arguing very strongly that the point is that if the UK leaves the EU without a deal, without this withdrawal agreement, it goes on to World Trade Organization rules, uh, that for a start, we won't have handed over £39 billion, which mm. we would do under withdrawal agreement. Because that is the We bear. won't be, have another two years where we're still tied to the EU rules, but we've given away our one bit of negotiating leverage. And that would be it would be better to break from the European Union and then negotiate the sort of trade deal that will be in the interests of the EU as well as the UK once we're outside, rather than this rather complicated arrangement that could see the UK effectively in the same rules as it's in now with the EU for not just two years for the transition agreement, mm. but, but potentially, potentially one or more two years sure. beyond that. Which, which what they would argue is, is actually self-defeating,
0: undermining the purpose of what this referendum was all about. But look, let's bring it back to the current circumstances in which Theresa May finds herself. The vote is on Tuesday, but at the same time, you cannot get away from the sense that there are vultures hovering mm. around a corpse. OK, now I'm referring specifically to the fact that we've actually had a resignation mm. from her government. Yeah. And you've also got her, for- her former Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, basically talking about the future, i.e. his future. You've also had her former Brexit negotiator, D- 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 Dominic Raab, coming out and talking publicly. That's been, that's been seen as these guys actually lining up for a leadership contest. If she's defeated tomorrow, is that it? Do, you, do, you, do either of you see Theresa May saying, do you know what, I can't do this anymore and just throwing in the towel? Most normal prime
1: ministers would. Theresa May, (laughs) I think, is absolutely determined to cling on and get the UK through Brexit. By whatever means she possibly can. And what is fascinating is that she has absolutely refused to say what her plan B mm. is if, when she is defeated tomorrow night. Possibly, but as she you have say, one. <laughs> just about everybody else in Parliament, in the cabinet, is already doing so. The manoeuvrings mm. are well underway. Of course, accentuated by the fact that Theresa May has already said that she's not going to lead her party into the next scheduled election, which is not due to take place um, before 2022. Uh, and, of course, that means that many of her closest colleagues feel that they have licence to already set out the difference that they would make, the direction that they mm. would take the country.
2: I, I think you're yeah, absolutely right. I don't think that she will sort of uh, turn around and resign. Um, I, I say so that also that, that, you know, she was standing when everybody else was running away even though they were grandstanding, um, And so I think she deserves credit. I'm, I'm not saying the deal is perfect, nor that the way she's behaving is perfect. But given the circumstances, given the the, the hand she's been dealt with, um, she's been remarkably resilient. And I think she deserves to continue to try to do so in, in that regards. But I think the, the point you were making about the fact that she hasn't talked about option B is very telling. Hmm. Um, I think she's really gauging the environment, the audience. But can I come she to this? She just, just hasn't
0: got, got a plan B. And that's 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 the point that I was going to make. I made it before. She doesn't have a plan B because she obviously staked a lot on getting this through. That's why she delayed the vote.
1: I think that she is also aware of what is happening in Parliament. If you look at the two government defeats last week, which were essentially uh, rebel MPs on her own side who want to retain very close ties with the EU, teaming up with opposition MPs from the Labour Party and inflicting defeats on the government and, in effect, dictating the course of events, the process of Brexit, helped by the Speaker, who is supposed to be Mm. completely impartial Mm. in this, Mm. who set completely new precedents in Parliament to now manoeuvres that now mean that, for example, uh, if Theresa May is defeated tomorrow at night, she'll have to come back within three days and say what is going to happen next. The plan B. (laughs)
2: It is quite remarkable.
1: And uh, many people suspect that what Theresa May hopes is that she, if there is a defeat, that it will be by a sufficiently small margin that she will then be able to go back to the EU to say, look, this is the mood of Parliament. I can't get this deal through. You've got Mm. to give me more. You've got to give me further reassurances about this Northern Ireland backstop, which many people believe would um, create different rules for for Northern Ireland than for The rest of the UK, and would mean that the UK would not be allowed on its own to break out of that transition deal to break out of the rules that it currently has to follow. Okay, well, it sounds to me as if Theresa May is to um, well. I guess,
0: politics, what uh, Houdini is to light entertainment. (laughs) Escapology, will she survive or will be revealed on Tuesday? Let's move on now to broach another question. Could 2019 be the year when Japan and Russia formally agree a peace treaty ending Second World War hostilities? Now, speculation that a deal might be on the cards was fueled by a meeting in Moscow between the foreign ministers of both countries, which it's hoped could pave the way for a summit between the Japanese and Russian leaders. At issue is the fate of a group of islands seized by the former Soviet Union at the end of the war. While Japan is claiming territorial rights to these islands, which it calls the Northern Territories, although so far Russia is refusing to give way. Now, Alessio, put this in context. Are these islands of any strategic use to either Russia or <coughs> Japan? Or is it the symbolism of these territories more than anything? I think it's a
2: combination of both. And neither should be discounted as as not particularly important because they both are. First of all, they are strategically important because they, um, they are in an area that is less uh, subject to... Um, um, very long winters and permanent ice. So, for example, in terms of both of economic uses, uh, it is said that they might contain also some uh, um, oil and gas resources. Um, they have uh, very strong fishing communities, and as I said, it would allow sort of the Russians to have a uh, place in the sun in relative terms, because we're still talking about Northeast Asia, which is very very cold most of the year. Imagine Vladivostok is only open three months a year and is usable about two and a half. Uh, Petropavlovsk um, a little bit more, but again, it's got strong limits. So, so, so there is that element, but I think the, the, the very important point here is about the symbolism of, 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 of the islands, partly because the way in which the Russians joined World War Two at the last minute, particularly sort of in the Far East, as it were, um, was always regarded as uh, somehow of a stabbing in the back by the Japanese. Um, and there is a, a genuine sort of tension insofar as culturally these islands have always had both Japanese and Russian communities, but since the Meiji time were uh, sort of part of the Japanese territory. So um, it is an important uh, symbol um, to particularly what Prime Minister Abe wants to project in Japan as the man that has unshackled Japan and sort of draw a line on the the end of the post-1945 period. So the peace treaty is something that he personally sees as very important. And Truth to be told, he has made a strong process, although whether that will lend them to a treaty is a different question altogether.
1: It is quite extraordinary that 70 years after the end of the Second World War, Japan and Russia still have not signed a peace treaty. And certainly one of the key issues in that appears to be the dispute over who should control these islands, which the Soviet Union sees towards the end of the war. Um, It has to be said, though, that the language coming out from the talk today does not seem to be very promising. Sergei Lavrov, mm. the foreign minister, has been insisting that as a precondition for any settlement that uh, Japan has to recognise Russia's sovereignty over the islands. Uh, he said Russia's sovereignty over the islands isn't subject to discussion. They are part of the territory of the Russian Federation. And you do sense that Russia, which, of course, is has these huge strategic and ambitions is only going to give up, uh, the suggestion is perhaps two of the four islands, um, if it sees that as part of its wider strategic ambitions, if it still thinks that it can get the access that it needs to its ports, and if it thinks it's going to lead to um, some economic de- advantages in terms of trade with Japan and the rest of uh, that part of Asia.
2: Uh- so that these are all very important points. I, I probably would say that, um, adding to that, that the um, the tone of the tension is part of the negotiating sort of practice between mm-hmm. Russia and Japan. If you, if, you, if you've been a long time, so it's observer, part of their
0: normal sparring.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, the Japanese have this like incredible patience; they're always buying and sort of like, seemingly smiling, and the Russians are always using sort of the wrong words, uh, at least in that context. But it's part of. Yet, yet, Abe and Putin have been meeting almost as much as. Abe and Trump. Um, They seem to be getting along very well. Um, It's one of the international figures with whom Abe has engaged the most. And and one has to be fair. They have made an incredible amount of headways, particularly because in the last round of meeting between Abe and Putin, they clearly um, talked about the fact that it would be possible to use the 1956 um, uh, uh, sort of mutual agreement as a baseline for the discussion, in which there is this understanding that the Japanese would be able mm. to regain at control some of the, point, some, some to the islands, which is a very different position from what the Japanese had before, and a good opening. Do the Russians have any incentive to actually welcome this and say, like, yes, let's get on with it? Not quite. But it's the same thing that with the European Union and the mm. UK. The Japanese are on the weaker side.
0: I thought you'd actually bring in Brexit at some <coughs> point, but let's move away from that now. In fact, have a little bit of a break, because coming up next, who gets the money why are the catholic church and the mayor of rome fighting over the coins thrown into the trevi fountain
2: california here we come Monocle has arrived on the West Coast. Our new shop and bureau is open at Platform the Design Quarter in Culver City that's home to 100 boutique retail and culinary brands. If you're in town, pop along to meet the team, pick up the latest issue of the magazine and browse our exclusive collaborations. From elegant stationery to smart jackets, plus plenty in the way of print, of course. Discover our range from furniture to fragrances, courtesy of brands from the US and beyond. Intrigue? Then come and see us at our new LA Outpost at Platform in Culver City. We look forward to meeting you there.
0: You're listening to Midori House. Here with me, Juliet Foster, Carol Walker and Alessio Patellano. Now, relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia could be further strained after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau granted asylum to a Saudi girl who claimed she would be killed if she was sent back home after she renounced Islam. 18-year-old Rahaf Mohammed Al-Qunun flew to Canada from Thailand where she had barricaded herself in a hotel room and used her Twitter account to describe her plight. Now, on arriving at Toronto Airport, she was met by the Canadian Foreign Minister, Christia Freeland, who is a vocal critic of Saudi Arabia's mistreatment of jailed female dissidents. I guess, Carol, the the key thing here is how the Saudis are likely to respond to this, because relations Mm. are strained over the human rights issue. And here we are revisiting human
1: rights again. Absolutely there's already a huge rift, a rift between Canada and Saudi Arabia after the Canadian ministers uh, criticized Saudi Arabia's record particularly on the rights of women, uh, trade arrangements have been suspended, ambassadors recalled. Um, but I think that Saudi Arabia is in a very difficult position here. It's uh, already on the back foot because of the the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and this eighteen year old girl has really managed mm. to capture a huge amount of attention around the world and really put the focus on the fact that Saudi Arabia, for all the fact that it trumpeted the fact that it was allowing women to drive, big deal, Mm. Mm. at the same time was locking up large numbers of women who had been vocal in pushing for greater rights. Uh, And uh, it is very clear that the Canadians are in no mood to bow down. They believe that this 18-year-old girl... Uh, was uh, fleeing from repression. Uh, She claimed she'd been mistreated by her family because she renounced Islam. Um, The UNHCR has deemed her to be a valid refugee. And the Canadian foreign minister welcomed her to the country, um, saying that she was now a a brave and proud Canadian citizen.
0: And I suppose what's fascinating as well is um, the the reaction of the Canadians. If you compare, Mm. for example, the reactions of Donald Trump to the killing of, of um, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, that um, mm. again that touches on a very specific human rights issue. He kind of ducked around it and then basically said in his well, he felt that um, the, the Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman wasn't involved in this. He cleared him out, and then you have the Canadians taking what would some would regard as a very powerful a moral stance here. So basically, Canada is positioning itself as perhaps one of the few true authentic voices of human rights standing up for it. But
2: that would be certainly the case and it would also speak to what how the Canadians feel about their own national identity. Um, and I and, and the think there was a, recently a very remarkable story um, about um, how, for example, this is an example of how sort of sense of Canadian pride in giving nationality to someone who's standing up for human rights and freedom. There's a sense sort of liberalism that goes that really runs through their veins and whenever you visit Canada, mm. you engage engaged with Canadian officials, authorities, even with the Canadian military. There's a deep sense of truth. Trust and 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 allegiance to these ideals. Um, so this is not something that should be taken lightly. Uh, and, and recently there was an, an example of something that was in a way challenging that, sort of denting. And and the Canadians were raising very important questions. That's the uh, the tourism that lots of sort of Chinese tourists going to give birth in Canada and stay there just about the time to get a passport for their children. Um, and 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 many Canadians <laughs> MPs were turning around and saying, "Hang on, this is going. This is this is really not a good thing because it goes." against the very spirit of what Canada is around is about. We are a welcoming country, but someone should not take advantage of mm. that. And so you've know, seen all these sure, kind things. Because that,
0: that was one of the points that's been raised in this, Carol, is the, it's the possibility that, that a precedent has been set. You don't mind it, but it's if it's if it gets taken advantage of. Uh,
1: that's right. But I think what is it also extraordinary about this story is what it says about the power of social media. Mm. And we hear a huge amount Mm. these days about the dangers, about the abuse, about the way social media can be misused. But this was an example where an 18-year-old Saudi girl was literally hiding in an airport hotel room in Bangkok. She had 24 followers on Twitter. She tweeted out saying that uh, she believed that she was uh, in real danger um, because the Saudi embassy was trying to force me to return I'm afraid my family will kill me. Mm. That tweet was picked up by a human rights organisation. They retweeted it. By the following day, uh, the hashtag uh, Save save Rahaf had been uh, tweeted more than half a million times. She had tens of thousands of Mm. followers. Mm. And that really sparked a reaction in countries around the world, including uh, in Canada, in Australia, where she'd hoped to go to um, to to gain asylum. And I think it was because this had become a globally recognised case that the Canadians felt emboldened to say, yes, you can come Mm. here and have refugee status. And the Saudis were left in a very difficult position. The Thai authorities who were on the verge of sending her back to Saudi Arabia suddenly threw their hands up and said, well, Mm. Okay, you can go to Canada. The sense of the world is watching. Extraordinary the way the fate Mm. of this 18-year-old girl and perhaps. The future course of relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia has, at least in part, been dictated mm. by the way that this girl used the power of social media. Can I
0: just throw in one final thought on this? Because um, a number of commentators have said, yes, it, it's it's great that Canada has given this girl a welcome, but it's how the aftermath is managed. In other Absolutely. words, she must yes. not be her her experience should not be commandeered by the right to uh, basically um, em- embolden those who are anti-Islamic. It's, it's got to be very, very careful. You don't you don't want her to be a, a poster child, if you like, for all the wrong reasons.
2: Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that is um, absolutely essential. But it goes back to the point that we were making earlier about uh, how you assess um, this particular situation and where you place it on that spectrum between uh, is this like a precedent for something new? Is this an exception to the rule? Or are we where we are this is the right place and we just need to be more aware of 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 monitoring uh, uh, social media and and sort of keeping an eye on things happening particularly in countries like Saudi Arabia where mm. human rights are abused
0: okay let's move on now to our final subject because an unholy row has broken out between the catholic church and the mayor of rome over who owns the 1.5 million euros in coins they are thrown into the iconic Trevi Fountain every year by tourists. Since 2001, a Catholic charity has used the money to help the city's poor, although that soon could be about to change. Populist Mayor Virginia Raghi wants to spend the cash on projects repairing the Italian capital's crumbling infrastructure. Mamma mia! But doesn't she have a point? Because, look, the Catholic Church is loaded, so why does it need to raid a fountain to actually do good for the poor?
1: <laughs> well, absolutely. There's been an outcry about the suggestion that this Catholic church, uh, f- this uh, Catholic charity is no longer going to get the money which tourists throw into the fountain, but instead it should go to the council. Uh, look, Tourists go to the Trevi Fountain. It was immortalised, of course, in that Fellini film *La Dolce Vita*. Uh, and they the full believe three coins in that the fountain. they believe that throwing a coin into the fountain will bring them good luck and make sure they go back to the city. They are doing it because of their love of this beautiful and historic city. Is it really such a bad thing that the coins that they're throwing should be used to maintain this city, which is crumbling? Uh, the council are also saying that they are going to use it on welfare projects as well. I know that the council in Rome is not exactly known for its um, efficiency, let's say. It's come in for an awful lot of flack. But look, uh, the tourists that are enjoying the city, surely their money should be used at least to ensure that it remains beautiful for future generations. (laughs) Sorry,
2: none of here. Um, Unfortunately, that's a populist uh, move that has absolutely nothing to do with the well-being of Rome because had it been with the well-being of Rome, she would have probably put in a very proper bid for the Olympic Games, because that's how you raise the necessary money to make the city again what it was. Rome has a public transfer. I was there just in November for a conference. The public transfer to Rome is a shambles. and um, The streets are absolutely horrific, Put it this way, as an Italian, if you were to tell me, would you love to sort of move back to Rome and work there in a top university? No, if anything, because I'm thinking about going, commuting on a daily basis, it will become a nightmare. And and that's the fault of consecutive Roman uh, 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 um, mayors who have failed to address this. This is a money that traditionally is given to this one particular um, uh, um, uh, um, Catholic related, Mm. but not Catholic church run charity so it's a real charity that actually brings about food to poor people in roma of which there are quite a few hmm. Can so I the just question jump in yes do, do, yeah. do tourists actually know that the money Goes to help the poor. What do they assume happens? Don't they cash? just think so, that
1: it's going to bring them luck and um, they're going to, get sir, to sir, come sir, back? So I think,
2: I think, I think we have to break it down into two things. There's the symbolism of this, as in, like if you're a tourist and you go there, you throw money in there. It's because you know there's going to bring you luck. But I mm. don't think that is because there's always money. Nobody really has the exp- nobody ever really sort of connected the thing that in reality this money is taken out of mm. now and then. It's got to go there's always, Exactly because there's always loads of it.
1: Will they stop throwing the coins in if they think the money going into yes, the hands of exactly. the problem. A good thought
0: on. Which to end because that brings us to the end of today's show carol walker and alessio Patalano, thank you both for joining us here at midori house today's show was produced by carlota robello researched by fernando augusto pacheco and martha Librinda. studio manager was christy evans more music next and at 1900 it's the monocle culture show and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the monocle daily at 2200